Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Monday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Well, we ended this past Saturday with our first discussion group on the Book of Job mini-course. As of Saturday, we had 520 people registered for that class. If you're not in it, jump right over to the website and sign up. It is absolutely free. All four lessons will be there for you, as well as the next three discussion groups on Saturday, all through the month of June. And also, all the available material will be right there for you, the syllabus and everything else. What a great group we had on Saturday. I think I have some of the best Bible students in the whole world. So I invite you to be there with me. And now, let's turn back to our story of Abraham on today's podcast. Now, we're at a critical place in the story of Abraham. We're at Genesis chapter 22. And I want to pause here for a moment and do something a little bit different. This is such an important chapter that I want to look at it in some depth. So to do that, I'm going to go to lesson number nine in our Genesis course, which is on the website, logosbiblestudy.com, in the course catalog. So if you have a look at it, Lesson 9 in Genesis, that's where I'll be taking today's podcast from. Admittedly, it will be a little bit long, but it's well worth taking a close look. Now, up to this point, God had taken his good old time about fulfilling the progeny portion of his covenant with Abraham. The promise that Abraham's descendants would number more than the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. At this point in our story, Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah 90, and they were still childless. But lo and behold, Sarah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, Isaac, through whom the plan of redemption would be fulfilled. With the introduction of Sarah's son into the family, Tensions rose to a fever pitch between Abraham and Sarah, Hagar, and her son, Ishmael. Finally, at Sarah's insistence, Abraham cast out Hagar and Ishmael, abandoning them to a very uncertain fate. Abraham's long-awaited son, Isaac, plays a key role in God's covenant. The plan of redemption moves through him, not Ishmael. But in Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. This is a stunning demand. What are we to make of it? The sacrifice of Isaac's story is fraught with ambiguity and narrative gaps. Indeed, the German literary critic, Eric Auerbach, observes in his classic, Mimesis, the representation of reality in Western literature, that the narrative strategy employed in this story, a strategy of deliberate ambiguity and narrative gaps, demands that readers bring their own interpretation to the text constantly re-evaluating and revising it as active participants in the narrative. This is very sophisticated storytelling. 
and very sophisticated reading. Earlier on in our study of Genesis, in our main course on Genesis, in Lesson 7, we looked at an episode in Homer's The Odyssey as an example of Xenia, hospitality. We saw hospitality when Abraham offered hospitality to the three travelers that turned out to be God and two angels. Well, we looked at an example of hospitality in the Odyssey as well. Recall how after being shipwrecked and losing his entire crew in the Odyssey, Odysseus washes ashore on the island of the Phaeacians, naked, cold, and half dead. Found by Nausicaa, daughter of the Phaeacian king Alcinous, Nausicaa leads him to the palace where he's bathed, fed sumptuously, entertained extravagantly, and Alcinous has a ship built and outfitted for Odysseus to continue his journey home to Ithaca. This story, and the fable of Baucus and Philemon from Ovid's Metamorphoses, illustrate the practice of Xenia that laid a foundation for our understanding of the Abraham story that we're engaging now. In like fashion, let's turn once again to Homer's The Odyssey to illustrate by contrast the extraordinarily sparse narrative strategy used in telling the story of the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22, a contrast brilliantly illustrated by Eric Auerbach in the opening chapter of his classic Mimesis. The scene I'm about to read is from Book 19 of the Odyssey, when Odysseus finally arrives home in Ithaca, only to find his kingdom in shambles his wife Penelope beset by obnoxious suitors, and his 20-year-old son Telemachus struggling to survive the chaos that Odysseus himself has caused by his 20-year absence at the Trojan War and in its aftermath. Odysseus arrives at his palace disguised as an old, decrepit beggar, giving him opportunity to safely survey the scene and to develop a plan to oppose and correct it. His wife Penelope, who doesn't recognize her husband Odysseus, commands Eurycleia, a longtime servant, to offer the beggar the customary Xenia, the hospitality, bathing Odysseus and washing his feet. The aged Eurycleia was nursed to Odysseus when he was a child, nearly half a century earlier. Notice how the scene's vivid details occupy the foreground of the story, casting a bright light on the setting, the characters, and the action. As Eurycleia says, Many a way-worn guest has landed here, but never, I swear, has one so struck my eyes, your build, your voice, your feet. You're like Odysseus to the life. Old woman, wily Odysseus countered. That's what they all say who have seen us both. We bear a striking resemblance to each other, as you've had the wit to say yourself. The old woman took up a burnished basin she used for washing feet and poured in bowls of fresh water before she stirred in hot. 
Odysseus, sitting in the firelight, suddenly swerved round to the dark, gripped by a quick misgiving. Soon as she touched him, she might spot the scar, and the truth would come out. Bending closer, she started to bathe her master. Then, in a flash, she knew the scar. That old wound made years ago by a boar's white tusk when Odysseus went to Parnassus, out to see Autoclique Autocolus and his sons. The man was his mother's noble father, one who excelled the world at thievery, that and subtle, shifty oaths. So through the scene's details, we're drawn into the story and we fall under its spell. The vivid dialogue between Odysseus and the aged Eurycleia brightens the language and makes it sparkle. The adjectives, way-worn guests, old woman, burnished basin, fresh water, old wound, white tusk, noble father. The repetition of sound, all say who've seen, say yourself, burnished basin, suddenly swerved, spot the scar, white when went. And the final description of Odysseus's grandfather, who is at once noble and one who excelled the world at thievery, that and subtle shifty oaths. Well, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. That's much like Odysseus himself. The poem then makes an elaborate 78-line excursus on how Odysseus, as a boy, received the scar while visiting his grandfather, all providing a long, drawn-out background to Eurycleia's sudden recognition of Odysseus, as well as Odysseus's sudden realization that he's been found out. That scar. As the old nurse cradled his leg and her hands passed down, she felt it knew it, suddenly let his foot fall. Down it dropped in the basin. The bronze clanged, tipping over, spilling water across the floor. Joy and torment gripped her heart at once. Tears rushed to her eyes. Voice choked in her throat. She reached for Odysseus's chin and whispered quickly, Yes, yes, you are Odysseus. Oh, dear boy, I couldn't know you before, not till I touched the body of my king. That is really excellent storytelling. The details, the dialogue, the language, the action, even the background details on how Odysseus got the scar all occupy the foreground of the story. As readers, we can witness Odysseus and Eurycleia before our very eyes, sharp and distinct. There is no ambiguity at all. Now that's in sharp contrast to the binding of Isaac's story here in Genesis chapter 22. Here's how it begins. Sometime afterward, God put Abraham to the test and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son Isaac, your only one whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. There, offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the heights that I will point out to you. 
Now this is startling on several counts, especially if we read it right after the Homeric account of Odysseus' scar. First, what's the context for the scene? What leads up to it? In Genesis 21, Isaac was born, Hagar and Ishmael were exiled, Abraham made a covenant with Abimelech, and Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac were living in Beersheba. Nothing that happened previously suggests anything leading up to or foreshadowing this. Secondly, where are the two speakers, God and Abraham? Presumably, God is not physically present with Abraham, sharing a meal as he did under the great tree of Mamre. Rather, he just speaks out of the blue, as it were. And where is Abraham? At Beersheba? Indoors? Outdoors? We're not told. When God calls Abraham, he says abruptly, Abraham! without any prefatory gesture or introductory words. Abraham answers just as abruptly, Here I am, a single word in the Hebrew, something like present or behold, you can almost see Abraham raising his hand. Abraham does not prostrate himself before God as he did when the three men visited him at Mamre, nor does he extend a greeting. God's call and Abraham's response are so abrupt as to be shocking. We didn't even know if the exchange is audible or if it's something simply within Abraham's own head. What's the reason for God tempting Abraham so outrageously, so terribly? Is God's demand in response to something Abraham did? Or is it motivated by other external or internal compulsions, either on Abraham's part or on God's part? Well, whatever the case may be, we're told, early the next morning, Abraham saddled his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and after cutting the wood for the burnt offering, set out for the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham caught sight of the place from a distance. Well, this is stunning. Abraham and Sarah had longed for a child, a child promised by God who would fulfill the covenant. Abraham had expelled Hagar and his firstborn son Ishmael to protect Isaac. And now God wants Abraham to kill Isaac? by offering him up as a burnt offering? <laughs> and Abraham agrees to do it. We know absolutely nothing about how he comes to that decision during the night that passes. Now think about that for a moment. Eric Arbach rightly summarizes the Homeric style as representing, and I quote, phenomenon, uh, phenomena in a fully externalized form, visible and palpable in all their parts and completely fixed in their spatial and temporal relations. That is, a Homeric story like the Odyssey takes place in a specific time 
and place with nothing hidden or unexpressed. All thoughts and actions are fully revealed. With Homer, there is no ambiguity. There are no gaps in the story that we, the reader, need to fill in in order to understand what's going on. It's just the opposite in biblical narrative. To understand any literary work, we have to answer several questions in the course of our reading. Number one, what's happening in the story? Number two, why is it happening? Number three, what connects the present event to the preceding and following actions? Number four, what are the characters' motives? Number five, how do they view their fellow characters? And number six, what are the cultural and social norms that govern the world of the narrative? The answers given by each reader enable him or her to reconstruct the reality devised by the text and to make sense of the world represented in it. Often, biblical narrative provides few answers to those basic questions. In most cases, we the reader provide the answers, some temporary, partial, or tentative, others wholly and completely. The act of reading fills in the gaps created by the narrative itself. This gap-filling may involve simply arranging textual information in a linear sequence, or it may be more complex, demanding that the reader develop an intricate network of associations, laboriously, hesitantly, and with constant modifications as additional information is disclosed at later stages in the story. The placement of gaps and their size are a direct function of the narrator who chooses what to tell the reader, when to tell it, how much to reveal, and in what sequence. Now that is a really complex way to tell a story, and it demands a lot of the reader. Now you might think, well, I like Homer's method better. I can just sit back, read the story, and enjoy it. I don't have to work at all. And I have to say, there's a lot said for a rip-roaring good tale. What you see is what you get. But that's definitely not the case with the Binding of Isaac story. The gaps in it are so big, you could drive a truck through them. So let's take a look again at the first four verses of the Binding of Isaac story. And that's where we'll put into our podcast on Wednesday. Thank you for being here, folks. Make sure you join up in the free Job course, the mini course, and I will see you back here on Wednesday with the story of the binding of Isaac, keeping in mind the gaps in the story. Okay, thank you, folks. I'll be back with you in a couple of days. Bye-bye now.